Here's a surprise for everybody who listens to this podcast. We're talking today about redistricting again. (laughs) This is the subject that just won't go away. It is the most important story in Ohio because it dictates the next 10 years. But man, oh man, the people behind it keep breaking the rules. You remember the song that never ends from when you were a kid? This is (laughs) it. We'll keep going. My friend. It is today in Ohio, the news podcast discussion from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with Laura Johnston, Layla Atassi, and Lisa Garvin, who just can't wait to start talking about redistricting. So let's dive in. How do the Republicans on the Ohio Redistricting Commission rationalize that they are no longer bound by the limits on gerrymandering that Ohio voters recently placed into the state constitution, allowing them to approve gerrymandered congressional maps, giving Republicans a majority disproportionate to the state's voters? Laura, they just don't want to do the right thing. They're looking for ways to avoid doing the right thing. That's not what public service is. Yeah, absolutely. And they're choosing some really, I don't know, absurd arguments is what the Democrats are calling it. And I I have to agree, but they're like parsing the different parts of the, the process to redistrict. And Senate President Matt Hoffman said Wednesday that they're not bound by this legal standard that the Ohio Supreme Court used to strike down previous just previous maps because they're no longer in that part of the process. He says the Constitution says that there are specific districts where the court has criticisms, then you need to only address that. And that's what they did. He's saying that in an earlier phase, Republican-only congressional maps also had to clear a higher political bar that it can't unduly benefit a political party. And that's what the Supreme Court cited when it rejected the the map in January. But Huffman's now saying, well, there's no reference to unduly partisan in this part of the process. And so, I mean, if he's right, Andrew no, Tobias, no, right? no, I, mean, I, I don't think he that, can be right. That, that's not right. Voters were given a promise that if you pass this, the gerrymandering will stop. They are. They, look, listen to what he's saying. You know, yeah, voters didn't want gerrymandering, but they because of the way they worded it, we have a loophole and we don't have to do what yes, the voters total want. Total loophole. Absolutely. Right. I mean, and there is no loophole. The intent of the law is the intent of the law. This is despicable. This is, yes, we know what the right thing to do is. We know what voters want us to do. But ha ha ha, we have a loophole. So we're going to do what we want to do. Keep disproportionate power and stick it to the voters of Ohio. Right. This is so th- just the terrible way to conduct public business. Yeah, the new map would get allow Republicans to win 10 of Ohio's 15 congressional district. That compares to the 12-4 majority the Republicans have in the current congressional map. We're going to lose a seat. And it's be- this is a little better than the previous map, which was Republicans would win 12 of the 15 seats. So the new map addresses some specific issues. Uh, the previous version had split Summit County. The new one keeps it whole. The previous one had split Hamilton, Hamilton County three times and only splits it twice this time. So Summit and Hamilton are better off. But still, this is not... But none of that matters. This is it's, not the 54% right. that we're looking for. It's gerrymandered. You know, if they did 9-6, they might be able to argue it. If they did 8-7, it would actually be what it should be. But but the whole rationale being that, but you know, we're, we're going to play with the words and the law to not do what we're required to do. That's what they're saying. 
we're, we're going to violate the spirit and the letter of the law because we think we can get away with it to keep disproportionate power. It is just an abuse of their discretion. And it, was, it just keeps going on, like you said in the beginning, like where is the end to this? And I, so Andrew Tobias has been, you know, all over the story since the very beginning. He has another one up this morning saying, you know, it's going to cost another $9 million to do the primary because this keeps going on for so long. And he pointed out something I had not realized, that Bob Cup is a former Ohio Supreme Court justice. So not only, I mean, we're talking mostly Matt Huffman in this particular turn of the mystery that is the redistricting commission but come on like he's been on that bar like he knows what it is and they are just you know putting their finger just trying to find a way through yeah it's really reprehensible public service and they should all be thrown out of office this is wrong they know it's wrong they're trying to stick sneak it through anyway and our only guardrail right now is maureen o'connor the chief justice you're listening to today in ohio Why is Cuyahoga County Councilman Marty Sweeney trying to weaken the requirement that county employees report wrongdoing of colleagues? This is a requirement created following the whole Jimmy DeMora corruption scandal as county voters create a new form of government to fight corruption. They wanted county employees to be on the hook to report wrongdoing. Layla, what is Marty Sweeney thinking? I know. They, they've been talking for the past couple of years about these changes to the county's whistleblower policy. So since the, the creation of the new charter form of government, county code has required county employees who discover wrongdoing to report it in writing to the inspector general within five days. And these whistleblowers are protected. But in 2020, county, co- county council set out to make some changes that they hoped would make it easier for those whistleblowers to report. And those changes include allowing the complaints to be made verbally as or in writing. So you would have your choice. Removing the requirement that you must report within five days and that you can make the complaint to a supervisor, for example, who then would report it to the inspector general for you. And they sought to define the remedies for retaliation on account of whistle of blowing the whistle. So council's operations and gov- intergovernmental relations and public transportation committee approved those changes on Tuesday and sent it to the full council for a second reading. So it seems like they're pretty close to nailing it down. But as you said, <laughs> Marty Sweeney, who's the committee chair, voted against it because he doesn't like that it says employees shall report wrongdoing, which means they don't have a choice. He wants it to say they may (laughs) report wrongdoing instead. He thinks that that would encourage cooperation better than requiring it. And he said, whistleblower is a scary word nowadays. This is the first step, I believe, in changing the culture. You know, Dale Miller, who agreed with him, said some employees don't feel it's their responsibility to be a snitch for management. It is their responsibility. (laughs) If they see tax dollars being stolen and squandered, it is their duty to protect the taxpayer. What are these guys thinking? Do you think they want to break the rules and they just don't want to get caught? I don't know. I mean, Councilwoman Sonny Simon was like, you know, you're watering down the policy by making it optional. And, and this entire charter form of government was formed in the wake of the biggest public corruption scandal we've seen in this county. And, and that scandal grew to the size it was because no one blew the whistle. So, you know, I, what, I mean, really, what is the point of the policy if you just make it optional? 
I mean, this is the head in the sand clause or, you know, their head up somewhere. I just don't get why they're thinking this way unless they're planning to break the rules and they don't want to get caught. Of course, people should report it. And and if you're working for the taxpayer, you have a duty to protect the taxpayer. That's why you're there. It's public service again. This is mind boggling. Martin Sweeney was the city council president of Cleveland. For more than a decade, he knows how government falls apart. If you take this away and tell people you can look the other way, we're going back to the Jimmy DeMora years when everybody looked the other way. And here's what strikes me. If you make it mandatory to report, you're actually giving employees cover because Mm -hmm. their excuse for being a snitch is that they're required to report it. If it's Mm -hmm. optional... They would have to choose to snitch. And I honestly think fewer people would report wrongdoing because the pressure to keep your mouth shut when you have the choice to do so is just too great. So That's a really good point. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, making the reporting mandatory alleviates the burden of having to choose. It, instead, it's like snitches get stitches, man. <laughs> like you, that's not how that's not the culture that you want to to pervade your workforce. Well, and it might actually keep people from doing wrongdoing in the first place yeah. if they know that someone's going to have to tell on them. That's right. See? Why Why are they not thinking that out? Well, I think <laughs> they are thinking it out, and we just don't know what his motive is. There's a bad motive for this. It's not what they're saying on the front end. They, they have something up their sleeve. They're elected officials. They should not be making it easier for people to steal from the taxpayers, which is what they are doing. Yeah. Yeah. And, and okay. really, by taking away the mandatory reporting, you're empowering those who would pressure others to not report. You're giving them more power. That's, you know, that's that's crazy. Two outrageous stories to start the podcast. And I would like <laughs> to point out that in one, we're complaining about the Republicans. In the other, we're talking about Democrats. We are an equal opportunity <laughs> cider of misbehavior in public officials. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Some properties operated by the Cuyahoga Metropolitan Housing Authority are not considered to be in the best condition. What is the Housing Authority's plan for a nine-story apartment building in the Union Miles neighborhood? Lisa, we've done stories over the years about kind of the squalid conditions that these houses and apartments can be in. It doesn't seem like they're spending enough money to do a big job at this place. Well, Union Square Apartments on East 98th Street is is senior housing. Um, there's 173 units there. It's a 50-year-old building. Uh, the CMHA is going to spend $1.3 million in renovations. That'll go to improve accessibility for the disabled, an electrical upgrade, redoing all bathrooms and kitchens. There is some water damage in the building that needs to be repaired, and then they're going to be replacing the sliding glass patio doors. Um yeah, I don't know if $1.3 million is going to well, be enough, but we'll see. Yeah, let me, let me ask Layla and Laura, who are having home renovations done at the moment, <laughs> how, how far do you think $1.3 million would go in a nine-story apartment building, given Maybe what you're spending apartments. on your own houses? Oh, my God. Yeah, that's not going to go very far. Like, oh, my God. No. 
I mean, I'll be in debt for the rest of my life, and I'm not even like gaining a single square foot of space. <laughs> but you're doing a kitchen, and you know what goes into. It. I, I just I hear them say, yeah, they're going to do every kitchen and bathroom, not with 1.3 million dollars. Yeah, this seems right, like it's right. a bogus. I'm not sure you can do all the sliding doors with one. <laughs> right, and if you dollars. divide that by 173 units, that's not going to go very far at all. Uh, this is part of what's called a rental assistance demonstration by HUD to tackle maintenance issues in aging public housing across the nation it's uh, so the cmha would be required by the department of housing and urban development to put away 1.1 million dollars for future repairs which again seems in, insufficient but cmha chief of staff jeffrey wade says that they've already done a bunch of renovations they said they've worked on eight complexes 3,000 units have been renovated so far and that cost ranged from 1.3 million to 3 million dollars um, he didn't mention any specific properties and he, they did say during the renovation of Union Square that none of the seniors will be displaced, which might be small comfort. So, yeah. Okay. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why are most of the officers in the Cleveland Police Bomb Squad looking to exit? Laura, I've had this on the list all week to talk about. We didn't get to it, but it's a pretty big deal, and it's one of the most popular stories on our site. Why are the Bomb Squad members so unhappy? They don't trust the sergeant in charge of the Bomb Squad, and this is disturbing in many ways but they have many of them have decades of experience these are not new people on the job so they've been doing it for a long time they're good at it and they don't trust the person who's going to be be their boss and the police union says that during a january 5th training exercise in the parking lot of cleveland hopkins airport the supervisor brought what officers believe with a potentially live pipe bomb for a demonstration. Now, this is not a good practice at all. I mean, you don't bring live bombs. You don't bring them to the airport. You don't endanger people. The union asked the sergeant to be removed from the unit until an investigation is completed. Police officials did launch that investigation. They didn't take the sergeant out of the bomb squad. So this is eight people, and at least six of them are saying they want off. They are assigned elsewhere in the department with other day-to-day duties, but they're on call to respond to calls for potential explosives and clean up meth labs and marijuana growing operations that have the potential to be volatile. So these members of the squad did wait until after the NBA All-Star weekend to to leave the bomb squad because that was so important. But we've got the upcoming St. Patrick's Day parade. We definitely want to be able to have have experts that are willing to do this job. But the union is discouraging anybody from applying right. to fill these vacancies because on the, the bomb squad. Because the sergeant's still there. I mean, that that's the problem, right? They say the sergeant is a problem, and unless he goes, people don't want to do these jobs because they don't feel safe. So there is a mutual aid agreement for bomb squad services with the Southwest Enforcement Bureau. That's a task force with 18 officers from suburban communities. But I don't think you want to rely on that long term. Like, that's supposed to help. Yeah, it's a, it's an odd one. That, I mean, these are the guys that are all about safety, and they don't feel safe, so they want out. It's a bit of a crisis for the Cleveland police. You're listening to Today in Ohio. Why did Cleveland Mayor Justin Bibb undo one of the last acts of former Mayor Frank Jackson and dismantle a new department for handling special events? Layla, we were scratching our heads at the end of last year as to why Frank Jackson created this thing. We wondered if he was trying to create a position for one of his favored people, and that didn't turn out to be the case. We never did get a real answer for why they created it, but they did it wrong, right? So it's gone. Yeah. 
I mean, so listeners might remember that back then Jackson was trying to create this larger division of special events and marketing to replace a smaller office that handles events coordination. And these are things like parades, filming movies here in Cleveland and and last month's NBA All-Star Game. And this seemed weird and kind of redundant at the time because we we already have, you know, the Greater Cleveland Sports Commission, the Film Commission, Destination Cleveland, and it just seemed like the city hall portion of the work that's involved there didn't require this kind of beefed up approach. And so city council was questioning the need for it too. I mean, four of them voted against it, which is about as divided as Cleveland City Council ever gets on an issue. So Bibbs Law Director Mark Griffin said this week that they've kind of found a loophole to undo Jackson's decision here. Jackson, it seems, failed to properly establish that new division. And here's what happened. To create new subsections of city government and to abolish old ones, Cleveland's charter requires the Board of Control to sign off on council's approval of the restructuring. In December, council did approve creating the new division and abolishing the old office, Jackson's Board of Control approved creating the new division, but it never abolished the old office. So Bibb is free to undo all of that. His Board of Control rescinded the partial approval that Jackson's Board of Control had granted. And the result is Cleveland's special events coordination is pretty much going to be conducted the way it was before December. Bibb might add more staff to help handle permits and things like that for event planners. But, you know, he says that one of the reasons for undoing the expansion of the division is is money. He said Jackson Jackson wanted to spend $800,000 on it and Bib is going to half that. So it's going to be about 400 grand. You know, like I said, we never understood why Jackson wanted to create this division in the first place. I'm but I am kind of surprised that after all the discussion and mulling it over with council that he dropped the ball and never closed the loop with the board of control. I mean, what happened? <laughs> well, the, the, one of their arguments for doing it was that it, there's too much red tape at City Hall and they're trying to streamline the process. But the argument against that is you don't need a department to do it. Just fix it. You know, stop making it so difficult. Make yeah. it more seamless. If somebody, you know, you've heard this over and over again, that dealing with Cleveland City Hall is is labyrinthine. You, there's no one-stop shopping for anything, not for buildings, not for events. And But th- the mayor is in complete control of streamlining those processes with the existing department structures. So I, I never did understand the creation of this, and, and nobody else did, although, you know, council did rubber stamp it without really questioning it. Yeah. Yeah, that's true. That's true. Well, I mean, there were four members who voted against it. And like I said, you know, they're usually lockstep with the mayor. And uh, that was that was a point of contention for four members last well, year. Well, will the, the council members who voted for this be offended that Bibb is unilaterally spiking it? I don't think so. I mean, they, you know, um, Kevin Bishop told Courtney, you know, he if he doesn't want one of these divisions, that's fine. It doesn't sound like they're going to be fighting, fighting to maintain this. I think they're a bigger fish to fry. <laughs> okay, you're listening to Today in Ohio. What topic was on the table when Justin Herdman, the former U.S. attorney in Cleveland, testified before the Senate Judiciary Committee this week? Lisa, we hadn't heard from Herdman in a while since he resigned uh, not long after Joe Biden became president. 
What was he talking about? He was testifying before the Senate Judiciary Committee Tuesday talking about carjackings. And in Cleveland, we saw a dramatic rise, a 50% increase in carjackings in the Cleveland area from 2019 to 2021. And Herdman says that these are serious violent crimes that require use of force to carry out, sticking a gun in somebody's face and stealing their car. And he said that shootings and murders are a lot more common during a carjacking incident as well. Um, He also pointed out there was an interesting diversion, I think, of opinion here because Herdman said in his testimony that many of these are teens. You know, um, a lot of them are, you know, 14 to 19 years old. You know, here in Cleveland, 10 of them were in this age range. They were arrested in March 2021 for 30 carjackings. And of course, we can't forget the New Year's Eve killing of Shane Bartek, a Cleveland police officer who was killed, uh, allegedly killed by 18-year-old Tamara McLeod, who had a record of armed robberies when she committed this alleged crime. Um, There were also four carjackings in Little Italy over nine days, and that was one group. Um, Herdman is saying that we should really add conspiracy to federal carjacking statutes. This would go after adults who use kids to carry out these crimes. And he said that we really need best practices nationwide for investigation and response to carjackings. You know, carjackings were up in Cleveland, but they were up really high in a lot of other cities, up more than 200 percent in New York City, Philadelphia, and D.C., so it's obviously a nationwide problem. But the guy uh, who was with the National Insurance Crime Bureau, he testified yesterday, David Glaway. He said there's profit to be made by carjacking because of high demand for vehicles and low supply, but Herdman said usually these are done either to commit another crime or for joyriding or perhaps a gang initiation, so I don't know. Yeah, we've We've looked at this, and there isn't. I mean, there may be chop shops somewhere that do this, but in Cleveland, it's kids joyriding or using them for other crimes. It's odd that the that he thinks the answer is to create more criminal charges because there's plenty of criminal charges you can put on somebody that uses a gun to steal a car. I mean, that's mm-hmm. illegal in every way possible, and the laws make it clear, but that's not stopping it. So... You know, maybe maybe charging your way out of it isn't the answer to to throw more charges around. How is that really going to stop this trend? It's not really getting at the root cause of it. Did anybody that you saw that testified talk about the root cause, the idea of poverty and lack of opportunity and all those other issues that are much harder to solve? It was not mentioned in our Cleveland.com article, so (laughs) no. (laughs) All right, put it right back on me. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Kroger considering a return to Northeast Ohio? Laura, every time we write about any kind of retail thing, people lap it up. Kroger was, I guess, a favored store, and then it left. Well, and Kroger is really big and elsewhere in Ohio. I mean, it's huge in Columbus. It's huge in Cincinnati. I mean, it's got a big national presence. And people love to read about grocery stores. So whenever we write about them, whether it's Giant Eagle or Heinen's or whatever, people want to know. And so, no, Kroger is not going to build a grocery store in Northeast Ohio. Its closest are in Mansfield and Sandusky. But it wants to build a fulfillment center in Oakwood that would basically deliver within five hours. I think five hours of of the center. So it would be like Amazon, but for groceries through Kroger. So it's this 270,000 square foot fulfillment center, cost about $100 million to build on 28 acres, just where near where uh, Interstate 271 and 480 split. So obviously good uh, transportation options then. 
So you would you would send in your shopping list and then they would deliver the food within five hours. Well, I mean, I don't know if you get to choose your delivery time, probably, but a five-hour radius, at least, of where that's located. So anybody in Northeast Ohio could order their groceries from Kroger. And, I mean, five hours, you could get to Cincinnati, but they they already have a new distribution center there. So they're doing this across the country. It's an interesting model. I mean, so many people during the pandemic gave up grocery shopping. They were, you know, first it was like they didn't want to get sick and they were worried about germs, and now they're just like, I do not want to spend my time doing that. So I'm going to have my list every week, and somebody delivers it for me. So I, I think this is going to be happening more and more. Really? So this could be the end of grocery stores? I no. think there's always going to be some people that like to go to grocery stores. I mean, my dad goes to the grocery store every day and gets him out of the house. But um, I think there are plenty of busy people that do not miss it. Have you, any of you done this? Ordered your your groceries and, and no. had the store? No. And not even Maybe. my ninety two year old mother. She went shopping throughout the 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 uh, pandemic. So yeah, she likes to pick her own produce. That's why. Yeah, mm-hmm. produce and meat. If you let somebody else do it, you can get crummy cuts. Layla. You've got the harried households with three little ones. Have you used this kind of thing for grocery shopping? I've done like the pickup stuff where you ordered online and go pick up. And I've noticed that the substitutions, (laughs) if you order like, say, a bottle of whatever salad dressing that costs $5 and they substitute something cheaper, they'll substitute you three bottles of the cheap stuff to to add up to the $5. Uh, Yeah, see, this is why I haven't done it either. But it's, it's mostly because I've never gone through the hassle of setting up. And I'm like, I don't remember what I need until I see it sometimes. But and also my husband's my husband does the bulk of the grocery shopping. So I've got, right. I've got my own personal service. <laughs> it's an interesting model. We'll have to see how I'll they sign do. up for the Craig, the Craig service. The Craig too. service. <laughs> <laughs> All right. You're listening to Today in Ohio. How is Metro Health planning to expand its approach to helping one underserved community in Cleveland get health services? Layla, you wrote about this back when you were writing. I know. So a few years ago, I had written this column about Metro Health's Buckeye Health Center on East 116th Street. It's this outpost that serves one of Cleveland's most vulnerable populations with a huge percentage of children living in poverty and, and being raised by single moms. And the infant mortality rate is also much higher there than the national average. But about half of the clinic's patients were not showing up for their appointments, which Metro saw at the time as a failure to deliver care to this part of Cleveland that really needs it most. And they can concluded that the reason patients were skipping appointments was because they just had too many other dire needs that needed to be met, like food scarcity or housing insecurity, and that those needs really trumped the need to see their doctor. So they tried something very radical at that location. They moved all the medical offices to the second floor and then opened up the ground floor rent-free to wraparound services. So today they include things like the Greater Cleveland Food Bank, Goodwill Industries, Legal Aid is there, CHN Housing Partners, and and others. And the idea was that if people felt like they could get more of their needs met while they were at this this location, they would be more likely to also come see their doctor and vice versa. Their doctor would be able to spot the need during their health screenings and and then point them straight in the direction of food assistance or legal assistance or whatever it is they need. So reporter Bob Higgs and I were discussing this one day and we got to wondering, well, whatever happened to that experiment? It's been almost three years. How did it turn out? Was it a success? Because quite frankly, the Buckeye Clinic was on its last breath. 
Metro says now that, of course, they would never have closed that clinic in this vulnerable community. But even for a safety net hospital, it would be really hard for Metro to justify keeping those doors open if no one was using it. So Bob decided to find out. And well, almost three years later, Metro tells Bob this model has been pretty successful. The no-show rate at Buckeye has dropped from 50% to 30, though more importantly, they say, it was just the right thing to do, and it very much aligns with Metro's mission of addressing the social determinants of health, the needs within a community that, if gone unmet, lead to poor health outcomes. And in fact, the model is so reflective of that philosophy that Metro plans on duplicating it near its main campus, which is you know under construction to become this amazing uh, facility. The wraparound services are expected to take up residence <clears throat> on the ground floor of the Via Sana apartment building, which is a $15 million project that's under construction adjacent to the hospital system's main campus. So it's like right there. And <clears throat> what a great... I mean, it was great. We just kind of, Bob set out to find out what was the outcome of this experiment. And turns out there's news to break. And it's, it's, uh, it's tremendous and very much in keeping with that philosophy that Akram Boutros, you know, has always uh, been a big proponent of. Yeah, it was cool to find out that it's working as well as it was. When you originally wrote about it, it was very intriguing. You were pretty excited about it at the time. And the fact that it's working so well to expand it is good yeah. news for Cleveland. I agree. You're listening to Today in Ohio, and we're going to go long because I want to talk about one more story. What is ShotSpotter, and is it working to help Cleveland police deal more effectively with the city's epidemic of gun violence? Lisa, it's a fascinating technology, but it sounds like there are serious questions about whether it means anything. Yeah, let's explain what ShotSpotter is first. Uh, basically, it's a system where they set up acoustic center, sensors on roofs and tall buildings. And, of course, it records all the noise around it. And then an algorithm is used to isolate gunshot noises from other noise. If they find that, then it triangulates the position where these shots were heard. Although this is all reviewed by a human expert before the police are called in. ShotSpotter is currently in the 4th District, which is southeast. Cleveland. It costs the city about $205,000 a year to implement. And then I guess that equals about $65,000 per square mile because this is like a four square mile area. They also have to pay a $10,000 fee to connect with other law enforcement technology. So right now, council is deciding whether to renew. So they're hearing from both sides on the matter. Um, In 2021, they say that there were no incorrect gunshot reports from ShotSpotter but it did point police to the wrong location seven times. But overall, they say it's like a 97% accuracy rate. It detected about 4,500 possible gunshots in 2021. Um, Johns Hopkins... But what does it... Go ahead. But what does it mean? I mean, mean, is it... I, I, I don't think we have reported there's been a drop in gun violence anywhere in Cleveland so, okay, so they, they can hear when gunshots go off, they can rush to the scene, but but there's usually nobody left at the scene, right? Right, right. And there was a Johns Hopkins study of 68 studies, or 68 cities that was done between 1999 and 2016 that found that there was really no suggestion that it made cities safer at all. 
Um, Blaine Griffin, who is the, the city council president, Ward 6 councilman, is a huge proponent of this. He says people in some neighborhoods are so desensitized to gunfire that he feels like it's a critical tool and he's all for expanding it. But I think there are other council members who are taking a more cautious approach. Yeah, I mean, if if all it does is tell you there was a gunshot somewhere, but it doesn't help you catch whoever fired it or or solve a crime, then what's the point of putting this technology all over the place? It, it was an interesting story. I, uh, I wasn't aware of the controversy involving this. It, when you first heard of this technology, it sounded like a good idea, but the Johns Hopkins study does raise serious questions about it. You're listening to Today in Ohio. We've got a little bit long. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Layla. Thanks, Lisa. And thank you to everybody who listens. Tomorrow's Friday. We'll wrap up the week of news.